welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded view in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, November 6th, we're studying Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. In today's text, the author of Hebrews calls his congregation to run with perseverance the race that is set before them, keeping their eyes fixed on Jesus. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Ryan Teets. Dr. Teets serves as Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology and Dean of Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Teets, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Oh, it's a lot of fun to be back. Uh, note to self, when you say you're free for these two days for recording, uh, be more assertive. So we get to talk about two verses for an hour. I'm looking forward to really finally getting to the point of the book, though, at least with uh, verse 1 of chapter 12. Okay, so we're going to get to the point of the book, you say. Talk to us a little bit about where this book's been and how oh, we're going to get to the point here. Man alive. Uh, if you, for, for those of us who spend far more time doing Hebrew than Greek, which I assume represents the vast majority of our li- listening audience here, uh, naturally that's where everybody spends their time doing a Hebrew poetry. <laughs> I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Uh, I, I know, I, know I'm, I have a very realistic assessment of my hearers. Uh, man alive, uh, I always forget how rough the Greek is of the author of Hebrews. Uh, yeah, it was a bit of a reality check. Uh, g- give me Matthew, frankly, give me Luke's prologue any day. The author of Hebrews has a way of uh, putting life into perspective. Uh, That's good. And, and he's been having this very detailed sermon now for what? Uh, 11 chapters. So he's gone through the superiority of Christ and this whole, okay, here's really the culmination of the Old Testament, how uh, culmination, we can finesse that and we can fuss over that perhaps. But yeah, we've had Christ as the superiority of Christ, this massive argument. And then for the uh, previous chapter, we've had this really awesome recitation of what it means to live by hope by going through all of the... uh, all the patriarchs and the Old Testament, Old Testament witnesses. And all of this is speaking to an audience that is utterly marginalized, an audience that feels like they don't belong, an audience that's always tempted to somehow give up. So this call to uh, hold fast, stay firm. Um, yeah. This is where our author is, reads very well with Revelation. It's almost a similar thrust to the message. Hmm. So the, the thought of being to a, a community of marginalized Christians, of those who are being persecuted, pushed to the edges, we, we heard a little bit of that in the end of chapter 10. And again, as we at the very end of chapter 11, as he, he ends that list of those who live by faith and what it looked like, it, it ended with a bunch of suffering. That's that's where it really ended, as, as we noted. You know, it's it starts in verse, what, 32, and as he kind of comes to that climax, you have all these wonderful things that they did. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong. But then his list goes beyond that and talks about the way that they didn't always escape the edge of the sword and were sometimes sawn in two. So that that persecution, that note that was there at the end, really plays an important role as he comes to now this therefore at the beginning of 12. Yeah, and that's where this book really is this wonderful grappling with the reality of what it means to be marginalized and what it means to not belong. And 
he takes this world extremely seriously in terms of, okay, this is not just the uh, superheroes that we like to call the great faith chapter in chapter 11. But instead, these are people who are absolutely, oh, hanging on to the point of suffering and, and even their death. And that's where we have that term uh, martyrao, uh, the term to witness, is already at this point almost taking a shift in terms of its meaning. So if you think in terms like John's Gospel, martyrao, witness, witness, uh, big, big issue here. Uh, now martyrao is starting to now turn into a, oh, a much more technical term that we simply use the word martyr for. Yeah, and that word's going to, to show up here in, in our text, translated as witnesses, but that'll give us an opportunity to talk about that. With the, as you, again, saying this is the, the highlight, the point of the sermon, we have the word therefore at the beginning of our text. It, it seems that that therefore would bring to mind everything that was in chapter 11, but perhaps more than chapter 11, but even the, the whole of the sermon up to this point? Yeah, because he's also, especially now by verse 2, is going to bring into this high Christology that he's already been... Oh, that he's already proclaimed. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the author and perfecter? So all of the, which really takes us back to really the whole sermon of here's who, Je- here's who Jesus is for you. Here's who Jesus, and oh, here's what it means to, oh, to be that faithful martyr. Yeah, yeah, okay, good. So let's, let's go ahead and just read these two verses that we've got for today. This is Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and, and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the text for today, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. So, as we've said, the, the text that we've got for today starts with therefore, and someone once taught me to ask, whenever you see therefore, ask, what's it there for? I don't know if we, have we covered that pretty well, Dr. Tates, well, or is there so, more? Yeah, to... although this word, if you take a look at it, it's a toigarun. Uh, this is, okay, one speaks to uh, the, uh, oh, I prefer to refer to him as being an utter genius, because his, Hebrew, his Greek is hard, Man, that's almost made an accidental slip up there. Uh, but this is one not your typical word. It's that combination of toy, gar, and noon. Uh, if you're dealing with the Paul, oh, more of the, uh, say, Romans, for example, we have un, un, un. Here he's taking a word that is relatively unique to the New Testament, uh, but much more familiar to, say, classical Greek. And the position's odd. Uh, typically, this should be not the first part. This should actually be later in terms of syntax. So he's actually fronting this word for the, this this word that means therefore the toy garun, and on top of it picking an odd word, which trying to read the mind read the original hearers is always a little dangerous, but at least for us this is a a, a bit of an attention getter. He should have he could have taken a much easier word for us to use, but yeah, instead so... it is this almost a bamo kapow, therefore. Yeah, okay, so pay pay attention. This is going to be a very important point. We're really going to start to draw things together here, again, not just from chapter 11 with those who have lived by faith, but from throughout the sermon. So, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud 
of witnesses. So again, with two verses, we've got the opportunity just to really dig into all of these words. Uh, since we are, maybe we'll start with the idea of being surrounded here. Actually, let's back up. Uh, it's very, uh, yeah, uh, why not? We, we, we got time. We broke out a lot. I, we're doing two verses today. Man, I, I'm so used to doing some really obscure, awful, new te- awfully difficult Old Testament stuff. Uh, it's a word that we miss the force in the English. Uh, it's, actually, it's actually the personal pronoun, we. Hmm. Uh, so much of the structure of this first verse is really that emphatic culmination of the argument. It is, okay, he's setting us up. Uh, so for those of you uh, who don't know Greek in the audience, uh, Greek doesn't require a personal pronoun for the verbs. The verb already has it in it. So here in the Greek, we actually have uh, hemes, which is the word that means we. And so actually having it there, and by using it, it's um, essentially, well, to our ears, almost redundant. Yeah. Or, I mean, this almost sounds like what the answer is to everything when I teach Hebrew. Um, oh, when in doubt, emphasis. So that's, well, it adds an emphatic nature, it really emphasizes, oh, the, the we there. So Yeah, that's right. Well, and, and we saw at the end of the previous chapter, after listing all of those who lived by faith, then in verses 39 and 40, he did bring us back in. Verse 40, since God has provided something better for us... And now that gets emphasized here again as he starts to draw these conclusions. So since we, we, that you who are listening to me, and and he includes himself, we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses. He's he's including his hearers. He's including himself in this proclamation. So we, there's their emphasis, are surrounded. Yeah, and you talk about one of the, just an absolutely beautiful image. Uh, Back when I was doing full-time parish ministry, one of the uh, great questions would come up, uh, are we going to celebrate a feast day if it falls on a Sunday? And the answer was yes. Uh, One, because frankly, when you're stuck in the endless green Sundays, it's nice to throw on red for at least one day. Sure. Uh, Good to break up the rhythm. But also, uh, at least for me as a pastor, uh, is that uh, a saint's day is the easiest sermon to write. Uh, I mean, you're not getting stumped with some bizarre parable or some obscure uh, Ezekiel text or take your pick. But I always got excited when we lucked out with a uh, with a red with a bonus red Sunday, uh, because preaching on the saints, uh, our confessions talk about it really well. Uh, okay, there's they react against the cult of the saint just saints justifiably so, but they also say, guess what? Saints are good for something. And, I mean, that's the easiest sermon in the world to write. I'm like, okay, so Feast of St. Luke. Okay, here is how Luke is our model of faith. And here's how we are thankful for God, to God for what he used Luke to do. Or take your pick. So this idea of the saints as role models is a really wonderful gem that we still have. Yeah. Now, I, I think sometimes, though, for, for us as Lutherans, that's something that perhaps we forget. Uh, as a Maybe it's a reaction against Roman Catholicism, that we're, we're a little bit afraid of those things sometimes. When, wait a second, I'm, I'm at church, I show up this Sunday, and, and pastor's wearing red, and he's talking about St. Luke, and he's not just reading the gospel reading according to St. Luke. What, what's, the, what's the deal with St. Luke? I think sometimes we, maybe we've forgotten this a little bit. Yeah, and it's unfortunate. Uh, this, our confessions are wonderfully clear on it, which 
that, okay, yeah, we don't pray to them, but they still have a very important purpose as role models. But, yeah, we do have our, uh, shall we say, and, and it depends which part of the country you're in. Uh, sure. Frankly, where I was in Schenectady, New York, uh, our area was never historically Lutheran to begin with. So most of our members were, frankly, lapsed Catholics anyway. So it, we, we didn't quite have this, the issue of uh, what are we doing about saints. Uh, sometimes, it, yeah, we had other challenges with, oh, by the way, we can't use the Ave Maria. But that was a different issue. But there Still, is, yeah, but yeah, especially among, say, those in a much more Protestant, I, I would call it broader, broader Protestant-influenced area where, oh, where they're even more Roman Catholic-phobic. Anything that sounds, ooh, a little too Romish, uh, yeah, can make us really nervous. Yeah, but here we have this great encouragement from the author of Hebrews to, to think about and, and keep this view in mind that we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. We talked a little bit about this at a couple points in chapter 11 with the saints and the way the confessions talk about them, not only their example of faith, but also the way that they are an example of, of God's grace shown to sinners. Because as we saw in chapter 11, there's a number of places where, as the author is going through some of the history, you're, you're scratching your head a little bit and thinking, ah, that person wasn't always that faithful. And so it's another opportunity, is, again, as we think about them surrounding us, to, to recall the grace that our Lord showed to them in forgiving their sins. Yeah, and that's something that we're... Uh, perhaps we take it for granted, those of us who've been steeped in the Scriptures for our whole lives, but the Scriptures are, real, are Bible, the scriptures are really unique in the fact that there are no superheroes other than Jesus. Yeah. Every human character is intrinsically flawed. I still remember, oh, yes, ba oh ba another New York story, just what we need. Uh, but doing a, oh, doing the crossways, it's that two-year guided tour of the Bible. Yeah. I had some uh, biblical literacy is always, as most of us now know, as always a bit of a uh, fingers crossed, assume nothing. Yeah. And I still remember we had just gotten done with King David. So, I mean, we all know the David Bathsheba story. Okay, that's at least what I always think. And this woman was almost in tears because she's like, a pastor, David was a horrible guy. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Bathsheba, not, not, a, not, a, not a shining moment, actually pretty awful. And, and then she was in tears saying, well, wow, if, if God could, could forgive David, he could forgive me. Yeah. So it's one thing for us to, yeah, it's always fun to do yeah, like big picture, okay? But then you see that in action, and man alive, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so to be surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses is no small thing. The encouragement that we draw from this is is quite quite large, as we've we've seen in a number of aspects. So let, let's talk a little bit about the particular imagery that he uses. You know, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. He talks about them as a cloud. Dig into that image a little bit. A couple ways to go with this, and depending which commentator you're looking at, they uh, play a couple different games here. Uh, perhaps the most basic one is just to, to use it as a metaphor. Cloud is a big honking group, and it is a great image. They're, but man alive, when I see that word, nephos, uh, I it's hard for me not to be thinking liturgically. Uh, okay, we have the... Uh, Oh, the cloud that goes with the people in the Exodus. And yes, Exodus always haunts me because, well, it's 
such a pervasive motif of salvation. It could be the idea that they're hidden to a point. That's what Kleinig actually does in his commentary. Mm-hmm. But better yet, just seeing it as this this absolute vast number of which we are a part, mm-hmm. and they aren't. And they aren't these uh, passive spectators. It's not the Indy 500 where everybody's screaming. But to see them both as models and encouragers for us by their lives of faith and what God has already, what God did for them. Yeah. So, I mean, with the, with the word cloud, as I was considering it in preparation for our conversation, you know, I was thinking about some of those Old Testament appearances of the cloud, where the glory of the Lord appears in the cloud. You mentioned Exodus, and I was even thinking about, you know, the Mount of Transfiguration, where the cloud descends upon them, and Moses and Elijah are there, but I wasn't sure exactly how to connect those dots, if if maybe, because the writer of Hebrews has been talking a lot about how Jesus as our high priest gives us this access to God's throne, and so the fact that we're surrounded by these witnesses as a cloud together with them, we are there before God's throne because of our brother, our high priest, Jesus. I didn't, I didn't know if that was reading too much. I'm completely agreeing with you. Uh, It it was interesting. There was that, a lot of the commentators, oh, uh, big honking group, or we can't see them. But actually seeing that cloud is so closely connected to theophanies, uh, to when, oh, God appears to people. And oh yeah, the author of Hebrews he uh, he has been employing how many oh how much oh oh unique, fascinating, important use of all of this cultic language. And okay, okay, this is where I have to pause and make sure I'm not misheard. Okay, uh, hearers, don't panic. I use the word cultic. Uh, uh, this has nothing to do with Ouija boards or necromancy. Uh, cultic is a word in biblical studies that simply refers to uh, the well, basically liturgy. Uh, the stuff that you do as part of worship. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, and he's, and he's talked at length, I mean, think about it, chapter 9 particularly, the beginning of that chapter, where he gave us this tour of the tabernacle and the temple and talked about the services there of the temple. So if, if there is a, a New Testament author that's going to, to make this connection with the word cloud, the author of Hebrews would certainly seem to be one to do that. Oh, oh, definitely. And think about how reassuring that is, uh, and how it actually comes into our liturgy anyway. Uh, therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of, of witnesses, uh, this is something that uh, oh, we hear it every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, um, that the old proper preface, it's, yeah, here we go again that we actually forget what we're saying as we, oh, in the service of the sacrament. That, yeah, it's there, that other side of the communion rail. That we, and, and it's just this wonderful image of hope. Yeah, yeah I really like that idea. And I, 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 frankly, I frankly agree with you that, yeah, this is a lot more than, oh, you can't see them, and, oh, there's a bunch of them. Yeah, it's that kind of participatory language around the throne of God. Yeah. Now, as as you and I are talking, this is we're recording in the middle of October. This episode will air on November sixth, which is right around All Saints Day, just after All Saints Day. This is not the appointed epistle reading for All Saints Day, but I think it could be. I mean, talk just a little bit about that that comfort that we have on a day like All Saints Day from a text like this. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, you just said, yeah, this is not the appointed uh, reading, and I, I was 
I did my quick, uh, I realized this doesn't translate into, oh, this is a visual thing, but I was scratching my head there the moment you brought it up. Like, yeah, why isn't it? And I, <laughs> and I, and I get it. The reason, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's what, Revelation 7, it's the 144,000, I'm pretty sure is the text. I think, I th- let's see, I think Revelation 7 is, is actually just the first reading. Oh, I think okay. Maybe, and then the, there's a reading from 1 John 3, if I recall right. Okay. We are children of God. And then you get yeah. the Beatitudes, Matthew okay. 5. So. Yeah. But, oh, man. Uh, yeah. All Saints Day uh, is a day that is a fun one to celebrate. Again, uh, don't panic. We, we're talking about saints. Take a deep breath. Yeah. It, it's it's a day that allows us to really celebrate what the author of Hebrews is saying here. And, and it's also a day that uh, there's certain gut-wrenching moments of the year for a pastor. And it's also the day that we do that reading of the roles, which, mm-hmm. okay, who... Who has fallen asleep in Christ? Who has died over the past year? And there is that. Okay, we thank God for the for those who have died in Christ, but also acknowledging the fact that they are on the other side of the of they're 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 participating with that great cloud, yeah. while we are here, up oh here where we can't see Christ face to face. And it's that really oh that that tension of oh yeah we celebrate but but yeah. Man, getting through that, reading the rules without completely getting choked up as a pastor is always one of my uh, big challenges. Yeah, yeah. And I think a text like this on on an occasion such as All Saints Day helps us to receive the the right comfort from the Scriptures when it comes to those whom, who we love who have died in Christ. So we've kind of talked a little bit about our, our Roman Catholic friends and where they go off the rails with when it comes to the saints. Sometimes our Protestant friends, when they think about those who've died in Christ, you, you'll You'll hear in popular culture about someone watching over you, or, or some of uh, some things that that maybe aren't as as helpful as as what is spoken here about the way that we are still united in the Christian Church with those who have died in Christ. And maybe this is a, a helpful corrective to provide the the true comfort that the Scriptures speak about about the way that God keeps us united with the saints who've gone before us. Yeah, it's hard to, for us to not pray, save us from pop theology at times. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've all heard funeral, the old, the infamous funeral sermon, don't, don't worry, this, oh, grandpa's watching over you. Well, no, uh, grandpa's participating with this great cloud, this great cloud of witnesses around the throne of God. That's yeah. great stuff. But yeah, uh, you got to be really careful. You got to be really careful there. It's Yeah. Well, and, and this verse then becomes, I, I think, a, a corrective to that, so that you, so that we don't just say, well, you know, yeah, your, your loved one who's died in Christ, there's there's no connection at all. Right? No, there there is, and as you've been emphasizing, it's when we're together in the divine service, especially at the communion rail. I mean, I I can think of of moments in my pastoral ministry where. You know, the family has come together, and just because of the number, they've come together to the communion rail, and because of the space that's available there, there's, you know, an empty spot because there wasn't, that's not enough room for whoever was sitting next to them, the family next to them. And and they've had a, that family that's there has had a loved one die. And and that's just a reminder to me, and I've encouraged them to think about that as well. You know, that's that's the empty spot, but that spot is actually filled. And you can't see your loved one who's died in Christ, but... He is with the Lord, and he's a part of that great cloud of witnesses. And so that's an opportunity for the, again, that true comfort, rather than the what pop theology kind of just plays around with. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I'm uh, currently recovering. I just got done grading uh, 24 funeral sermons for major prophets. Uh, 
uh, this is by yearly ritual of, uh, well, you have like the old Beatitudes, blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, that blah, blah, blah. Uh, mine is a blessed Lord God, King of the universe, that you did not create me as a homiletics prof. Every time I grade these once a year. But, it, but that got back to kind of what we need to do as pastors with a funeral sermon. Uh, you can't ignore the life of the person who, who died. But you also can't, oh, be careful of eulogies. But instead, how does their story connect to Christ's story? How is it a witness to those of us who are grieving their, their death? Yeah, and that's what a good yeah. funeral sermon does. So I think that, that then starts the conversation where he goes next with, this is a great cloud of witnesses. I mean, as we were talking about chapter 11 in previous studies, I was often calling them saints, again, those who live by faith, but he particularly labels them witnesses. Why witnesses? Yeah, and this is that shift of the uh, of the term. Uh, oh, here it's one. Mar- uh, martyron. Uh, martyron would be the verb behind it. Is that we go from it being and being simply a witness uh, courtroom language, which is sort of where its origins would be, and now this term uh, martyron is now taking on, uh, I'll say, a much more stark technical meaning where it's no longer just a courtroom witness idea. It is somebody who, who through their suffering and death, uh, gives testimony, shows who Christ is, uh, and through their faithful endurance. And, and, well, we t- and stay tuned to the early church. This is where we have what the, book of mar- the books of martyrs and how we yeah. really you know, martyrdom of Polycarp onward. That's as close to patristics as I usually will ever get, is that we end up having this really, really powerful thing that churches do of, oh, we, we give thanks to God for those who have gone before. Uh, and that actually even speaks to what makes uh, early Christian funeral customs and worship spots uh, somewhat unique. Uh, they're not just worshiping in the catacombs with where all the uh, skeletons are because Oh, nobody in the right mind would go down there because they're spooky. Uh, no, they're actually worshiping there with those, with the bodies of those who've gone before, who gave the testimony as role models. Um, and something where I, we don't have nearly enough churches where the cemetery is located right next door to the church anymore. Uh, we we don't like talking about death. We want to get that. We want to keep that cemetery as far away as possible. But man alive, when I go visit a church where the cemetery is right next door to it, I mean, it's it's a powerful image there of those who have gone before. And yeah, now here, yeah, uh, Martyreau has now gotten pretty serious. Yeah. It's no longer a, uh, getting called to court to, oh, uh, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth? No, no, no. Are you willing to, through your very suffering and death, uh, show, what, oh, show your hope in Christ and what Christ yeah. has done for you? Yeah, and, and we are surrounded by those who have done precisely that, who through their endurance have lived by faith through the suffering, and now they are part of this great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, encouraging us as we continue to run this race. We're going to pick up more of this on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to, Di- we're talking to Dr. Ryan Teets this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, November 6th. We're studying Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2 with the Reverend Dr. Ryan Teets. He is Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology and Dean of Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Teets, prior to the break, we were talking about the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. Before we leave that behind, just what are they doing for us? What is the you you mentioned they're not just spectators, and we're going to come up to this athletic imagery in just a second. What are these? What is this great cloud of witnesses doing for us? They are. Oh, it really comes back to oh to circle back to something that's come up a couple times. I like the fact that we couldn't get even get through one verse in the first in the first segment. So I, I guess our pacing will be okay today. Is that oh, as the ones who are these powerful role models for us, and powerful examples of, oh, here's the life of faith, and better yet, and you brought this up really well during the first segment, uh, of the ones of oh, here's what God has done for the, done for them. Here's what God does for us. Uh, they really, through that, uh, through that role, enable us really, oh, really encourage us, help us to be able to, to. To take to run this race, and I love the term for race is what agona, so agony, yeah, and to be able to yeah, it's, this is not just a foot race, this yeah. is an agona, yeah, yeah, to be able to move forward. Yeah, do you have any other thoughts on that, or I don't know if we're quite no, no, I think that I think that's going. helpful. Just to to know that they're not just spectators. That I think I think is is they're participants, you know, and they're, and they're they're encouraging, cheering us on, uh, providing this example. At the same time, though, as we're going to see. That's not where our eyes are focused. Our eyes are not focused on this cloud. Our eyes are going to be focused on on Jesus. And I, I think that's a, just a wonderful thing to keep in mind. As much as, much as we think about preaching on saint days and, and the encouragement that's there, always those sermons on saint days are going to point us finally to fix our eyes on Jesus and not on St. Luke or whoever that might be. Oh, yeah, exactly. I, I, I love the fact that when I celebrate with the saints, I realize my race isn't alone. Other yeah. people have run it. I, I'm That's not the right. only one who struggled this way. It's, it avoids. It's oh, and part of the encouragement is it really. It's very easy to get it to feel isolated when we're struggling. And this is a well, you're you're not alone. Uh, your sufferings, frankly, aren't even all that unique. Yeah. And being able to be this way to help us overcome really a lot of the isolation that goes when we struggle in the faith. Yeah. No, and I think that's something that uh, I guess I didn't really think about until I was studying this again for our conversation. But the fact that these are all plural words, you know, you, the emphasis on the word "we," I think a lot of times we hear this this text and we think about, oh yeah, I've got to run this race. 
but but the author says we are running this race, not just not just me. We are running it. We're, we're trapped by the culture we're part of, uh, yeah. and oh, as much as I would love to be able to be a person who reads the Bible well, which is a person who is from oh, the majority world, so non-Western cult, not the non-West, and a farmer. I am neither one of those. Uh, nowhere close. Uh, university brat. Uh, yeah, I really not. Yeah, Do you I, have a I, garden at least. Um, my wife does, and okay. I'm very happy all right. for for all the produce that I cook because <laughs> I don't cook Midwestern, so the food has flavor. Uh, is that uh, is that what we end up having though? Is we're so we get we fall into that uh, the me and Jesus trap, uh, and I mean as much as we disagree and when we say oh we're not oh evangelicalism not us, uh, we still have these moments of being these kind of hopeless individuals and you're right it's it's all it's all first person plural pronouns here uh this is something we do as a community yeah that's yeah. right and that and that should be a great encouragement for us so all right we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses before we get to we've started to talk about the running but before we start running the author says we need to turn things off so we need to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely Talk about what we got to get rid okay. of. Uh, we, we got we got an interesting metaphor here that uh, I got to be careful with my audiences. Uh, take a look at Greek vases. Uh, they didn't wear too much when they ran. Right. Uh, how, how's, I, I think I feel free to expand the euphemism for those of you who are more grown up listening to this. Uh, is that uh, there are all kinds of things that can make running difficult. And being able to understand what's important. Uh, that word, though, uh, so lay aside every weight. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, ditch anything. Uh, what I love here, and this is really true for these two verses, is the author of Hebrews is doing a great job at not being overly specific. Uh, the, I mean, what is that reference to weight? Uh, uh the reality is that for all of us who hear this wonderful statement, uh, what encumbers our our race, my race is going to be probably, I can guarantee you, is different than yours. Uh, I mean, save me from a lengthy biblical reading because I turn into an academic. Who would have thought that would be something that would encumber our race? But, but that's the curse of having a few too many degrees sometimes. But And that's where the author really is causing us to reflect, so what does it look like? Uh, the one thing that makes it, then we run into the one word that nobody knows what it means. I mean, that is the one little challenge that we have here. Which the one is that, that? It is the uh, eupistaton. Uh, it's, a good, it's a good old-fashioned hopox legomena. Oh, okay. Spoken tongues accidentally. That's Latin, though, so, right. which is even weirder for me to use. Uh, it's a one-time occurrence in the uh, Greek Bible. Yes. Uh, if you, it probably means, uh, simply means, uh, usually means good or skillful, and then uh, the second part being surrounded. So, uh, surrounded. so it's the uh, stuff that so easily surrounds us and gets in the way. Mm. Uh, it is a uh, whopping one-time occurrence, so if you need to do your word study on that, congratulations, you're done with your work, because mm. it's right here. Yeah. Uh, not a lot of examples in classical Greek anyway. So a little tough to figure out what it means. Uh, but if you think about it as just continuing the thought of these weights, yeah, uh, yeah, it's the stuff that just 
makes our lives really difficult. But again, uh, I love, just like that image of weight, uh, the author is wonderfully nonspecific. He's even more wonderfully nonspecific in terms of uh, which sin he's going to address. Uh, he's not going to go into one of those great paranetic sections like Paul uses. Okay, let me pick on, let me give you a good list, a good, a good vocab check on, on all these sins. But there are, but every one of us has certain sins that just get in the way. Yeah, yeah. So to put those things aside, uh, and they're thinking about Paul, the baptismal language, and he talks about putting off all of these other things, right? So lay those things aside, whatever it is that that hinders the running of this race. Lay those things aside so that we can run, and we can do that with endurance this race that is set before us. Yeah, I, I don't like this word for race, although uh, if you... if we ever Agony, meet face, you said, right? You no, know, if you ever meet me face-to-face, I'm uh, I'm not... Dis- I, I, I lug heavy chunks of iron. I don't run. Uh, uh, I am not built for it. I do not like it. I am always concerned when I see runners. I'm worried <laughs> about their about their possibility of salvation or at least their <laughs> mental health. Uh but that's don't wor- don't worry. Runners are saved. Don't panic. That's right. Don't panic. Always got to be a little careful. Got to be careful with quips. People tend to overread them. <laughs> but uh, taking it, but really looking. But it's not your typical word for race. It's the uh, it is your uh, what's the agona? It's the uh, could be meh, struggle. Struggle. Yeah. yeah. And we and this race language as struggle is a good way to capture what it means for us. To uh, to well, be on be on this part of our journey where it is at Agona, it is a it is a struggle. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I I couldn't help but make the move with uh, the struggle, the long, nasty, tough, hard journey, a journey in which God provides and God carries us through, but nonetheless a long journey. I mean this oh this is a oh. I'm a little nervous because no no commentator went this way, but I'm going to go. But well, what's to stop me? Uh, seeing this as possibly a way to view uh, the wilderness language of the ex of the Exodus, if you see us as on a new Exodus, uh, we are the ones who have gone through the waters of baptism. We've we are now s- stuck between the waters of baptism and entering the promised land, and that journey in which uh, Christ oh. Give us today our daily bread. Uh, Christ cares for us, but it's one of it's one just like the author of Hebrews is dealing with the uh, marginalized existence. What does it mean to not be part of it? That uh, our struggle is one because we are on a journey and we're just not there yet. So this a journey motif, a uh, new Exodus language. Yeah, yeah. I like. I mean, so I appreciate pointing out that this is the word agona. That's an agony. That I, and I th- and a struggle. And I think that helps us to understand why this is a race that must be run with endurance. It's not a sprint. It, it's the endurance is required, as we've seen. And I, I like the thought of connecting it to the Exodus and and the the even the the wandering. Although the the wilderness wandering was not a happy time for the writer of Hebrews back in chapter three, for sure. There were lessons yeah. to be learned. But the the reason that I I, I like at least some of those connections, is because as we were talking about the thought of laying aside the things that would hinder us so that we can run with endurance the race, and think about that term weight. When I studied, this has been several years ago now in Sharper Iron, where we talked about the tabernacle in Exodus, and one of the guests made the point that, you know, when you're taking a journey, 
you, you carry what's most important. And you think about the things that God gives his people to carry, they're pretty heavy. I mean, the, the all those furnishings for the tabernacle, these are not small things to carry. And yet, it's that's what they need for this journey, is, is that, you know, to be in the presence of God, to receive his holiness there at the tabernacle. And although they are maybe physically heavy, that's the the light burden of, of our Lord Jesus that, that makes the journey, in fact, actually, I don't want to say easy, but it it gives us that endurance to go through this this agona. Yeah, and and yeah, it's all a matter of yeah, what is important. Uh, there's the sin that entangles, and now and now this just segues perfectly into into oh how this journey is even possible. Yeah, and that now finally gets us to verse two. All right, so so how is this journey possible? Looking to Jesus. Oh man. We, we, we've had all of the saints awaiting fulfillment of old. I mean, that was, whole, that was 11. By faith, they see this. By faith. Although they're not there yet. Uh, and then our eyes, we, oh, and now we have Jesus. Have, look at the two, the two titles here. Yeah. I mean, talk about loaded language. Uh, we have that uh, word of our, what, our kegong. Um, the uh, author is how it's uh, rendered in the ESV there. Um or founder, I guess. Founder, founder. Yeah, it's. It, I think the NIV does author, but I've seen. Yeah, either the founder and perfecter or the author. Founder. And oh man, yeah. uh, sorry. I, oh, that was a little dangerous. I accidentally, accidentally went NIV. That's not good for my image. Of, like, could have been Message Bible. I could have done worse. Uh, there's always that. I could have done a lot worse there. That's right. Yeah, but so if you look at is the sense of yeah. that founder author. Uh, look at at better yet uh, to pick up the race language. This is the this is the leader of the race who's gone before us. The pace car, the, yeah, the pace car, the trailblazer. Yeah, uh, we talk about Christ being Christ's resurrection being the first fruit, fruit the first fruits of the of all those who will fall all all those of us who will fall asleep. That yeah, Christ is already he's the one who has already blazed the trail and uh, and won the victory, uh, and we 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 are in many ways along for the ride. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so he's the, he's the founder, the the pioneer, the trailblazer. What about the the perfecter? Or I think sometimes I've heard it said finisher of our faith. Yeah, uh, yeah. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to unpack that word faith. We better make sure we do that. But let's get into uh, because well, faith is being modified by both of these. Right. Uh, in terms of uh, perfecter, uh, this goes back to what the author of Hebrews has been all about. Uh, he's the one. This is. Uh, Christ's role as the one who gives access. He's the access grantor of it. And uh, when we talk about faith here, I mean, it, we, okay, let's, let's be honest. We, we hear faith and we're thinking catechetical content here. Uh, here, uh, faith probably doesn't refer to content, uh, more, of a, more of the way of life that is closely clinging to promises. And this adds, it, Closely connected to the idea of endurance that we just saw earlier. Yeah. So this would be the rather than the the faith that is believed, this is the faith that believes, the faith that yeah. trusts that we're talking about probably okay. here. Nice use of dogmatic categories there. I well, like I, I, was... I only use I, I use the dogmatic categories, but I couldn't remember that which is which in the Latin. Oh, so man. I don't uh, want to you know, get that wrong. As an as an OT exegete who sold most of his systematics books, what's I'm glad we could do English there. That makes me That's feel good. a lot better. Okay. Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, I really do like this. I but and really getting into uh, what does it mean to look to Jesus? It means uh, it's this notion of this persistent attachment to what Christ has done for us. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and, and he's he's used language similar to this previously back in, in chapter two, where where he talks about Jesus being, you know, all things, he, he reigns over all things, but we don't always see that, but we do see Jesus, right? And we know, and we see him especially in his suffering in chapter two. And here again, that's going to be an emphasis. So keep, keep those eyes yeah. fixed on Jesus. That's where it, they have to be. Yeah. And then we go from uh, the language of martyrajo, mar- or martyr, martyr as one who gives up his life. Oh, and uh, Jesus already did it. Yeah. I mean, he gave the he gave the great sacrifice. I mean, that's the author of Hebrews. Man, oh man, uh, I love this guy. Even if his Greek just humiliated me constantly, uh, but that's it's good. Uh, humility is a cardinal virtue of an academic that many of us don't practice well enough. That's right. Um, Very good. Is it, oh, but yeah. I mean, look. Oh yeah, cross. Role model, timeout, technical foul. This doesn't. This isn't right. It's the scandal of the cross. Uh, hard to be unique to this occurrence here. But and the idea of what oh, scorning its shame, uh, where shame for us is not embar- Shame for us can be embarrassment. Uh, shame for these hearers would have been isolation of community. It's the anti of the plural, uh, plural pronouns that we've seen throughout here. So yeah, he. He completely, oh, looks looks at shame in the face and endures the cross because he's the one who's gone before us. Mm. And then, oh, and then we get this final, what, seated at the right hand of God. I don't want to jump ahead quite so quickly well, there. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Well, I just, I don't, let's talk a little bit for the joy that was set before him. And even just that, that language of being set before, I think... You know, we, we kind of skipped over that that the race is set before us, and it's a joy that's set before Jesus. So we probably should pick up pick up yeah, that language uh, too. That, that, that yeah, that word of what Carla there or the uh, yeah Carlos, I guess uh, it is uh, just so jarring. Uh, that's joy, joy suffering. Time out. This doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, but being able to, uh, but the reason it's able to oh is oh that. You can call that karas, uh, call it joy, is because of the really the eschatological result. Uh, the reason it's joy is because, well, this is the faith that leads us to fall asleep in Christ and rise to new life at the resurrection. Uh, I mean, this there's a reason you can call it joy, because of the result, not the process. Mm. And in a world that wants to escape suffering, uh, we don't do suffering well. Uh, we met, we do everything in our power to avoid it. Uh, this is a pretty jarring statement here to call it karas, yeah. but focusing on the eschatological result, which we also are still hoping for a future, yeah. and that ties back to eleven. Uh, they're yep. looking for something I haven't seen yet. Well, that's right. Uh, we got to be really careful. We tend to always stop talking about Christ with the first advent, and we say, "Oh well, oh, Christ has already come." Therefore, we're different than those witnesses and. In uh, chapter 11, oh no, we're, uh, what, I look for the resurrection of the dead. We're paid to break it to you. The, the creeds say it really well. Uh, we're still waiting too. Yeah, so there, there is still something that we don't see. Like the, like the saints, the witnesses from the Old Testament didn't see, there's something that we don't see yet either. But again, so what, what do we look at? Well, we look at Jesus, who had this joy set before him, and so that is what gave him, I guess that's how he endured all of the things that he did, the scorning of the shame, the death on the cross. It was because of the joy that was set before him. And and I think, I mean, again, when we think about at the end of verse one, it's this agona that's set before us. 
well, yeah, the, the agona itself doesn't look so great all the time, but there's joy at the end of it. And, and how do you get to that joy? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Yeah, and oh, we better not forget that fixing eyes on Jesus. Uh, we live in a world that, okay, we can, uh, we talk probably sometimes too much of how the world is no longer our friend. Mm. And there's a danger that happens is that if we're focusing on our enemies, on the opposition, on whatever, fill, fill in the blank here, coming persecutions, whatever you want to say, is that we end up actually becoming really bad theologians. Uh, because what ends up happening is we let the fear drive us, which ends up leading us to uh, make some really bad, weird theological choices here because we're so scared of the enemy. Instead, the author of Hebrews, meant, hey, they're already shedding blood at this point. And what does he say? Uh, don't uh, focus on Jesus because guess what? Jesus already won. Yeah. Uh, you, you don't fear because Jesus has already won the victory. And man alive, uh, we need to, as... As uh, pastor theologians, lay people, all of us here, as we contemplate this, we've got to be really careful over, is fear driving us, or is it what the author of Hebrews says here, uh, focusing on the victory that's already won? Yeah, yeah. The, and the, the thought that this has been set before us, then I, I think, would, would invite us to consider that, that God is the one who has set this before us. So he set the joy before Jesus so that he would endure the cross God is the one who's set the race before us so that we would go through it in endurance. And again, thinking back into chapter 11, so especially those, those last, that long list, you know, if, if God has a race that's set before me and the way that my faith plays out is that I'm mighty in war and I'm putting foreign armies to flight, God be praised. And if the race that is set before me by God is one in which I'm killed with the sword and I wander around in the skins of sheep and goats, then God be praised there. And I can say that either way because God's the one who's set this race before me. Yeah, and and the victory is not about you. The victory yeah. is already won. That's right. That's right. It's been won by our Lord Jesus Christ, who, as as the writer concludes in verse two, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The, we get to the the ascension and the session of Jesus, sometimes neglected in the church, but hopefully we're working to change that. Uh, yeah, and uh, we got to be careful. Uh, I know it's the, oh, wow, okay, Christ must be there. I mean, I even factored into the uh, Swingley debates for crying out loud back in the Reformation period. Uh, right hand, okay, if I'm dealing with the hand of God, uh, this is a wonderful image. Uh, whenever I see hand of God, this is God's saving power. And uh, for Christ to be at the right hand of God, and we confess it. Uh, yeah, Ascension, yeah, Ascension 1, it has to be on a Thursday, which messes everything up. And it's kind of a letdown. Well, uh, Christ has left the building. Uh, okay, kind uh, of kind of a bummer. Uh, but if we go into what it means for Christ to be at the right hand of God, right hand, it's God's saving purposes. Uh, and to ascend to heaven means Christ is in the throne room running the cosmos. I mean, this is a, a wonderful image of not divine, of not Christ's absence, but actually rather Christ's presence. Yeah, this right hand of, of God language. And I know it already came up probably earlier in one of these earlier uh, episodes. Uh, Psalm 110 is already factored in there. But sure. Psalm 110 being a, just a really important text that's being echoed here. Well, yeah, remind us just briefly of that. It doesn't. It's not quoted, perhaps, but it's definitely alluded to. Yeah, so Psalm 110, it's the uh, Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Uh, this is a text that in terms of... 
uh, of significance is one of the most important messianic psalms in the entire Psalter. Yeah. Uh, we, we can get excited about other ones, perhaps, and don't get me wrong, Psalm 2 has its place in Psalm 22 and all those. Uh, but this is the one that gets quoted by the author of Hebrews as describing Jesus as the perfect son of David, who's also a true God. Yeah. And it gets used. Jesus also uses it in his debates. So it ends up becoming this really important uh, text that identifies who Jesus is. Yeah. Yeah, and, and specifically here, named Jesus by the author, not not Christ by title, but by his name, identifying him as our brother, who is there seated at the right hand of the throne of God, which is just a marvelous comfort. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. The person who understands us the, uh, the, is the person who is, who is bringing about God's order, caring for us, winning the victory, and even giving us the means by which to endure whatever martyretto looks like for us. I mean, this, yeah, it's, yeah, it's too bad Ascension just, oh. Hey, it's, it, it's just one Thursday a year that you go to church and is absolutely worth it, okay? Oh, I couldn't agree with you more, but it's more, I think its biggest problem is that we, oh, it, it really, oh, yeah, he's seated at the right hand, and we could make that, we could kind of miss that here even with the, in Hebrews 12 too. As we get, oh wow, he's oh wow, Jesus is gone. It really, it's really sad. Uh, no, uh, no, Jesus is actually oh in heaven, and gotta be. And whenever we run into that sure. word, word heaven, uh, just this is the easiest word to put in the word world. Heaven means one of two things. It's not where it's. It's either the it means sky, so the up stuff, or it also it's also the throne room where where God rules over the cosmos. Yeah. And then that ties in really well to this, as you brought up earlier, this language of the race that's been set before us. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. Got about a minute left here, Dr. Teets. Help us to wrap things up on these marvelous verses from Hebrews. 20. Oh, man. I never thought I could talk about two verses for uh, for an hour. Uh, that's usually the negative stereotype of exegetes. But we get, we get to the this wonderful conclusion. Uh, we've gone through 11, so this call to endure not and to use these, have these witnesses before us as these great role models and to put our eyes on the one that the author of Hebrews has been telling us about throughout, uh, Jesus who is given us access to, has given us access and who continues to rule, continues to care for us even as we go through our various agonas. The Reverend Dr. Ryan Teets is Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology and Dean of Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's been helping us today to study Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Dr. Teets, thanks for being our guest today. Oh, always fun to be able to drop in. We are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before us, setting the example of faith. And yet, as they encourage us, our eyes are not fixed on them. Our eyes are fixed on Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He has endured the race. He has come to the eternal joys, and he is bringing us there through our race. Keep your eyes fixed on him. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Hebrews 12, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.